We would like to welcome our listener to the podcast series Who is Universal, which will be hosting in the run-up to the White West Conference. It is co-organized together with Anna Teixeira-Pinto and Anselm Franke. My name is Kader Atia, and our guest today is Norman Ejeri. Norman Ejeri is a philosopher and faculty member at the Department of Philosophy at Villanova University for Liberal Arts and Sciences. His research interests include political and social philosophy, race, post-colonial studies, as well as African and French contemporary philosophy. We've been working together on different occasions, most recently for the film project The Body's Legacy, Part 2, The Post-Colonial Body, presented at Kunsten Festival des Arts, Brussels, in 2019. His book, La Dignité ou la Mort, Ethique et Politique de la Race, Dignity or Death, Ethics and Politics of Race, was published in 2019. So, dear Norman, in your opinion, how is the invention of race and its contemporary treatment by the control societies in which we live correlative to the conception of disciplinary biopolitics developed by Michel Foucault and taken up by Gilles Deleuze in the 90s? knowing, moreover, that race was not conceptually developed by these philosophers. Thank you. Thank you, Kader, for the invitation. Thank you uh, to the Haus der Kultur und der Welt for the invitation. Um, it is um, a pleasure to be here and, and to, to have another conversation with you. It's, it's always, it's always a, a great pleasure uh, to, to, to have a discussion. With, with you, Kader. Um, actually, this discussion on biopolitics uh, that Foucault had is not a discussion that excludes race. Uh, if you think of uh, Foucault's book, Il faut défendre la société, society must be defended, which is actually a, a, a um, series of lessons uh, Foucault had. Uh, Foucault and at the Collège de France, the notion of biopolitics in those lessons is derived from the notion of race and racism. It's actually a way, this notion of biopolitics, it's actually something Foucault derives from the idea that in the 19th century, um, there is a shift in, in our modes of government, in, in the Western European modes of government. And this shift is something that has to do with the idea of um, a certain politicization of biology. Race, according to Foucault, is a politicization of biology such as enmity. The notion of the, a distinction between the friend and the enemy tends to become conceptualized in terms of uh, something that threatens the life of a specific group. So the traditional political enemy tends to be defined in vital terms or in biological terms. The idea become, becomes to protect a healthy, um, a healthy group against contamination, against 
something that will destroy the life of the group. And racialized group, according to Foucault, are the groups that threaten the, the, the life, threaten, threaten the, the uh, flourishing of a healthy, uh, of a healthy um, social group, which is now a healthy biological group. It's quite an interesting remark Foucault makes here, but I think it is somehow limited because the um, conclusion Foucault draws from this idea is that we are in a situation where um, the end point of racism or the goal of racism is to eliminate or to exterminate the unhealthy part of the society. It is to destroy something that is described as unhealthy, something that is described as um, a threat to the uh, health of the, of, the, of the primordial fundamental group, that is to say in most, most cases, European white, uh, white group. Okay, but the problem I have with this idea is that it doesn't describe the vast variety of moments of racialization, right? And especially the fact that, according to Foucault, there is racism where there is a decision, the biopolitical decision to decide who will live and who will die, right? But the problem is, most of the time, you do not have this sort of um, very strong and very powerful decision. You do not have this moment of um, sort of teleological moment where you set a goal. We have to get rid of this specific population. You ha we have to destroy this specific group. We do not have this. We do not have this decision of who will die and who will live. But what you have, on the contrary, I think, it is something like a blurring of the frontier between who lives and who dies, or more profoundly, a blurring of the limits between life and death. And this is why um, Foucault and after him. Uh, uh, people in Italy like Agamben, people in Italy like Roberto Esposito introduced the notion of thanatopolitics, right? The problem with biopolitics in this whole tradition, it's its tendency to turn into thanatopolitics, to say a politics of making people die. But what's interesting is that you have two notions for death in Greek. You have thanatos, which uh, is uh, um, conceptualized as thanatopolitics in, in, in Foucault, Agamben, Esposito, but you have also Nikos. And I think this notion of Nikos is quite more interesting than the notion of thanatos, because in Greek thanatos, you have this in ancient Greek philosophy uh, from Plato, you have this in the letter to uh, Minosius uh, uh, by uh, Epicurus, you have this idea, it's the, the idea that thanatos amounts, death amounts nothingness, right? Yes, it is a form of dying that is a form of nothingness. It is a notion of death 
that were described by Greek philosophers as a sort of eternal peace, the utter absence of bodily and psychic sensations that makes that, that make we um, being able not to fear death, right? Because death is nothing that is nothing that occurred to us. Death is nothing to us. That's what Epicurus said in his famous letter. But the notion of necros, on the other hand, is something quite more frightening than this notion of heaven. There is nothing uh, peaceful about necros. There is nothing uh, to, be, to be reassured of about necros. Why? Because traditionally, in ancient Greek, necros means a cadaver, a corpse. But it, it means way more than this. It's, it's also the situation, the precarious situation of the buried alive. It's the precarious situation of the tragic hero who doesn't know if his action is going to lead him or her to victory or to death. It's the situation of the gladiators who are fighting for their lives until they die because they are considered to be slaves. So we have a very large, a very various set of the, 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 the vast array of um, significations of the notion of Negroes, but they all point towards the same thing, is to say a situation where death and life are in a way strangely mixed in hybridity between life and death. And I argue that our racialized situations today are very much closer to Negroes than to Tanatos, right? We are in a situation where racialization is a way of, not a decision of who will die and, and who will live, but a situation where some people, some lives are, are designed as um, not worthy, valueless, uh, are condemned to indignity and are pressured towards situations where they may endure situations that are even worse than death. And in, in whole cases, in situations where their lives are not valued and where um, a situation of life, death, misery, all those things are considered to be indifferent to this, to this society. And of course, it can lead them to that. It can even lead them to extermination, which is something that is uh, extremely, I think, it's ex extremely uh, present today, especially when, when we are discussing the notion of uh, black lives and the value of black lives, and especially black male lives. But in the, in the same time, you do not see this sort of teleological uh, genocidal plan. We have to understand this destruction of uh, life, of racialized life today, in a, I think in a way more subtle uh, fashion, if we do not want simply to deny the violence that racialized people are enduring today. Mm -hmm. It's um, it's it's very interesting because I was uh, I was listening to you and I was remembering that uh, first time we met I think at La Colonie, you were uh, sharing a debate with I think 
if I'm not wrong, either Etienne Balibar or Tristan Garcia on the theme of dignity in politics. And this leads to my next question, which is much more simple, but has to do with this sort of uh, wondering about how uh, that repression, that massive repression works. Now you live in the US and I was wondering why are there browns, black, Latinos, Arabs, women, gay, who keep voting for Trump? Is there a philosophical point of view that would make Etienne de la Boissy discourse, I'm talking about the discourse on servitude, a fatality in the human subject to look for and want a tyrant? <laughs> that's, that's interesting. But you know, maybe my, my answer my answer will, will will surprise you because I think it, 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 we're in a situation where I think the the real the, the, the real position of uh, voluntary servitude is not black and brown people voting for Trump. It's rather black and brown people voting for Biden because. Usually, I think, in this situation where the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party treated for a very long time, for like half a century, treated especially black voters as captive voters, right? Uh, pushed some black faces on high places, but didn't, never done something in order to improve structurally the economic, social, and political situation of black people, of poor black people, of working class black people and brown people in this country. Uh, we're in the situation. We are in a situation where uh, Black Lives Matter occurred, uh, appeared under Obama's presidency, right? Uh, we are in the situation where we know that Joe Biden in, uh, nine, in, in uh 1940 uh, passed a terrible law allowing uh, or ex making explode mass incarceration, uh, criminalizing nonviolent offender, pushing for a juvenile uh, life without parole sentences that, that obviously affected predominantly black and brown people. We have we have this situation. We have this we have this record of uh, wrongdoings this party, this Democratic Party, done for black and brown people in America. So, in this situation, you can imagine that some people may consider themselves rebelling against the situation by voting for Trump. And I'm not saying it is a good way to rebel against the establishment, right? But I think it's not a good way to put things, to, to, to uh, imagine that those people are entrapped and that the vast majority of black people who are voting for Biden are, are, are the wisest people in the world, right? I, I think both those choices have problems. And I, I, I do not think that in terms of blackness, right, in terms of Black people thinking in terms of their blackness and their interests as black people. I do not think that the, the, the Biden-Harris ticket is necessarily a better choice than the um, Trump ticket, right? Because in terms of what both 
big parties, both the Democratic and the uh, Republican Party, done for black people, police reform, economically, integration, all those questions, they've done the same thing. They pushed for racist policies against black people. So I completely understand the fact that some people are willing to vote for another candidate and try to um, try, try to change the narrative. Because we have now always the same narrative, predominantly and vastly predominantly like nine uh, or ten black person are voting for the Democratic Party. So it's written in advance, right? This is, it is not a vote that will change the election because we already know what's going on. Uh, 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 and the Democratic Party has absolutely no uh, interest in changing their politics because they, they do not want to, to, to lose this part of, 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 the, of, the, uh, of the voters that they think are their property. And Biden said it, right? If you do not vote for me, he said it to um, uh, Charlemagne the God in The Breakfast Club, this very famous uh, morning show in the U.S., right? Uh, followed by, by many black people. If you do not vote for me, Joe Biden, you, you ain't really black. Right? That's the mentality. That's the mentality. And this is because of this mentality that you see some uh, black people with the willingness to vote for Trump just because they do not want to be Biden's slave, which I think is a quite healthy way to think. The problem is that the other guy is Trump. And uh, self-avowed white supremacists, right? But here you do not have a good choice, right? As I said, in terms of blackness, of course, on some issues, Biden is better than, is be, is, is better than Trump. But in terms of blackness, I, I do not think you have one choice which is supposed to be better than, 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 the, than the other. So I, I think that you have a sort of rationality Right behind this Trump vote, that some people that some people decided to, to have. I think there is a rationality, and this rationality is we shouldn't be captive of the Democratic Party. And I think it's not about Trump; it's really about the unhealthy relation uh, uh, electoral politics entertained with black people in this country. The question of brown people and especially Hispanic people is quite different because you have many white Hispanic people, you have many anti-communist Hispanic people, you have many people who, who rich people who, who um, decided to leave Cuba when it became communist. You have all those generations of people who are viscerally against socialism and of course those people are Trump's basis and they aspire to genuine American whiteness, I think. And I'm pretty sure um, this is going to happen. Right? <laughs> you are going to, to be accepted as, as, as real, as real genuine white people like, um, like Italians before them, like Irish people before them. Right? It, there is this openness for uh, whiteness that, that will not appear as Hispanics or uh, uh, let's say, brown people for a very long time. I think, I think their aspiration for whiteness will be, will be enforced by uh, the Republican Party uh, and that there, there will be the 
sort a sort of uh, response to the demographic shift we have now in the US, right? Um, this fear of white uh, white American Protestants to, to, to become a minority. Well, if you have a massive amount of white Hispanic people, uh, and especially white conservative Hispanic people, it's not a problem anymore. And, and, and you have a lot of them, actually, and it's possible to make a deal. But of course, this deal will be made uh, to the expense of uh, poor brown people, and especially black people, right? Especially working class black people. And, and I think it's, it's, it's our situation. So it's, it's, quite, it's, quite, more, it's quite more complex, but, 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 but uh, as I said, both parties do not have a very healthy uh, relation, uh, relationship to, to uh, working class people of color in America. Yeah, yeah. I was actually thinking about a state uh, like Georgia, which used to be traditionally uh, a Republican state and has become, uh, has changed recently. And following the stats, uh, the black uh, uh, inhabitants of this state are much more educated than they used to be. And on the contrary, the white people are like getting down in terms of education. And I, I, was, I was actually uh, talking with Olivier Marbeuf, our friends, about this. And it was with Olivier, we shared this, I mean, uh, suburbs, banlieue background of uh, people who try to, let's say, intellectualize their um, thought uh, in, a, in, a, in a context uh, uh, that was not um, uh, that, that common, you know, that uh, uh, we, we felt uh, quite isolated. And in these particular processes of uh, education, uh, I was wondering uh, if, in the end, this sort of uh, perverse relation that exists between the image of the tyrant and the mass is not actually a class uh, relation that has to do with the fact that the lowest the class is, the less the tyrant is. is I mean, and this, I'm talking about the system here, is is uh, is helping them to be educated, and we know that this in the U.S. it's quite significant. It's really the, the, the tool of uh, ignorance helps this. I would say, and I would, be, I would agree you, that it helps both uh, parties to run the country. So, but Norman, I think you answered quite clearly on, on that. I would like to go to the next question, which share uh, another philosopher that we've been dialoguing recently, who's, who's, who is Bernard Stiegler. And... Um, I would like to go back also on the on the now and the question that the way that uh, fascism is using, as it has always uh, used, uh, uh, the executive tool of the society, which is police, to control the individuals and the groups. So this is my question. We live in the age of economy of attention, where ret retention and protention, donc retention and protention, are now exploited as raw materials. Do you think that the filmed image of racist crimes, which has been, which has a long history, as Harvey Young, an American critic and historian, once explained to me, is part of an economy of protention that continues the exploitation of the racialized body in the economy of attention that we are facing today? This is what you told me once about 
when you referred to the horrorism of the Italian philosopher Adriana Cavarero. Oh yes, 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 of course. And this is a very and it, it's very interesting you mentioned Bernard Stiegler here because immediately what what I thought when you when you asked your question is this very famous concept he borrowed from Jacques Derrida, right? From one of Jacques Derrida's early texts, the notion of um, pharmacon, this Greek notion of pharmacon that you find in Plato, and uh, both Derrida and Bernard Stiegler interpreted this notion of pharmacon in terms of a sort of mixing of the poison and the remedy. And I think this is precisely what we have with those images, right? The filmed images of police violence. It is a remedy because, especially for instance in France right now, we have a very, I think, important fight against the government because the government, the French government, wants to prevent people from filming the police, right? There, there is a law that is now uh, examined by the French parliament that prevents people to film the police or to they want us to, to have a lot of restriction that will make these images, these footages, as ineffective as possible. And of course... Uh, this is in the wake of uh, people, French people, such as uh, Amal Bentoussi and the movement uh, Urgence de Police Assassine, uh, who designed an app in order an application for uh, our smartphones to film the police, to stock those images in, in, some, in some safe uh, cloud spaces, and in order to make them public, and in order to have the certainty that those footages will be made public and that they will be uh, uh, safe from any erasure by the police, right, immediately. So this tool made the government afraid and it decided to pass a law in order to prevent us to film the police. So it's, it's an extremely important um, state to have this tool, to keep this tool, because... We've seen it with, uh, with um, the, the, the case of uh, George Floyd in the U.S. recently. We've seen it more recently with the case of Michel Zeclair in France, right? And, and I hope you are going to talk a little further of, 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 this, this, case, of this case later if you're interested in it. Um, we've seen that in those cases, it helped to mobilize people, right? It helped to in the case of Michel Zeclerc, to, to, to have justice in a way, that is to say, to prove the, 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 the policemen wrong in order to show that they lied about, about what they did, that they um, had completely irrational and complete, completely gratuitous acts of violence against this black man. Or in the case of George Floyd, you have a situation of a very large transnational mobilization that is, I think, um, due to a great extent to the fact that all those images, those horrific images, have been made public. 
So this is the remedy part. But where's the poison? Because as I said, we have both. The poison is the fact that those images, and especially in the case of George Floyd and, 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 and some others, those images are snuff movies, right? As, as, we, as we call them, snuff movies, they say real images of someone getting killed indirect. It is absolutely incredible the fact that those images are made public, are um, broadcast everywhere throughout the world, and the fact that those images are treated as are, are normalized as part of our public entertainment. And you do not see this with other groups of people, you only see this with black males. And we are witnessing a normalization of black male killing broadcast on many TVs, uh, on the social networks, on YouTube, everywhere, right? Social media, you name it. We have a pervasiveness of those images, and libidinally, you, you will not convince me that a very vast amount of people who are watching and watching and watching again those videos who transform them as uh, Professor Tommy Curry said, transform them, turn those images into YouTube sensations. You cannot tell me, tell me that those people are not enjoying it. And part of this problem is the enjoyment many people have watching those snuff movies, right? This fascination on the internet subculture for snuff movies is not something I invent, right? It's, it has a long history. But the problem is, it is supposed to be something underground, something in the, in the depth of the dark web, and so on and so forth. But when it comes to black males, you have snuff movies treated as public news, absolutely normally, without any blurring, without any, you know, preventions. <laughs> It, it, is, it is something absolutely scary in a way, right? And the problem is, as I say, it's a pharmacon in, 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 a, in, in the language of Derrida and Stigler, it means that it is an aporia, right? It is an aporia because we need those images in order to politicize the situation because usually narratives are not enough, especially for black males. We need shocking images in order to make people uh, have a little empathy for black males, because usually black and brown males are not people you can empathize with. They are not considered to have emotions. They are not considered to have feelings. They are not considered to being even people who can suffer. That, that dates back from slavery. That dates back from colonialism in Nigeria. Those people have been considered to be insensitive and so on and so forth. We both know it. So we need those images, but in the same time, it contributes to uh, create an atmosphere, a nice static atmosphere where black males are always already considered to be corpses, right? It is part of the necropolitics to, to, to borrow uh, Ashil Bembe's terms and, and the explanation I, I gave earlier, it's part of a necropolitical continuum 
that tends to normalize um, uh, black death. Uh, uh, and that's why it, it's a very, very traumatic and very problematic situation. Mm-hmm. And um, I, was, I was listening to you about this uh, uh, Derrida and, and Stigler references to uh, the pharmacon. And as you said beautifully, the, the images is a pharmacon because uh, it carries uh, in a perverse way. I like that you use the word, the word enjoyment because in French we translate this as jouissance, which is very much linked psychoanalytically to the perverse uh, and the sadism of, uh, the, that is part of uh, each human beings. It's very interesting. Um, I, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. yes. Oh yeah, listen. If I, if, I, if if I can just add some, if I can just add something, especially about Michel Zuclair, because it completely relates to the situation. Uh, for our international viewers who are not um, completely aware of what's going on in France right now, we have a situation where um, a music producer, a black man, uh, has been uh, violently assaulted by police officer without any reason. Uh, in his music studio, he was uh, going to his music studio uh, in Paris, the 17th uh, arrondissement of Paris, uh, which is quite a bougie, <laughs> quite a bougie uh, part of the French capital city. He was followed by a group of police officers without any badge, without any um, identification. They uh, addressed him quite violently. They followed him in his studio and they beat him up, right? They, they beat the, the, the living shit out of him, uh, literally, in his own studio for practically no reason. And they sent a gas grenade after that. I mean, it, it was a, a complete shit show. And they repeatedly treated him. We had witnesses. They completely... Repeat, repeatedly uh, uh, called him names, and especially dirty nigger, dirty nigger, dirty nigger, uh, which is a word that uh, people who read Franz Fanon are uh, familiar with, right? Salneg. It is the uh, insult Fanon discusses lengthily in Black Skin White Mouth. So those police officers after that wrote a completely false account of the events, right? They accused him of having resisted uh, arrest, of smelling cannabis, and, uh, and many different things. Even they, they accused him of trying to disarm a police officer uh, uh, to, to, to take the, the, the weapon, to take the gun in order to, to threaten the police. Well, completely absurd, uh, completely absurd narrative. By chance, he had put a camera in his studio and everything was filmed. And uh, even in the streets, some neighbors filmed the, the scene and we were able to understand what happened. Why am, am I interested in this specific situation? Because we had in France a long history of police violence, but usually you have the same narrative, right? This person resisted arrest. This person 
uh, was trying to uh, to to to, um, to go away when 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 this person saw the police. These this, those people were part of the social movement, so uh, it's it's completely normal to be violent uh, against them and so on and so forth. You always have a good reason. But here, in this specific situation, you do not have such a rationality. You do not have a good reason. You what you have is just police officers who see a black male entering his own building, follow him, and beat him. The only reason for the situation is that racist, is racist cops seeing a black man and saying, we are going to destroy this filthy nigger. And, and that makes us completely, I think, rethink, we should completely rethink the way we try to politicize this situation in, in the public space, in the French public sphere. Because usually we're talking of uh, state racism, we are, we are talking of structural racism, which is not a, a problem, but what is the signification for this notion of state racism and police racism? Usually it's the following one. We are treating, our police officers are treating unequally white people and black people. When they're confronted to black people, when they're confronted to Muslims, when they're confronted to brown people, they act more violently, they tend to be more unjust, and so on and so forth. It's about inequality. But I claim now we see that it's not about inequality. It's, about, it's, it's not just about profiling. It's really about targeting, about treating black people in our streets as targets and trying to exterminate them. Because if we wouldn't have those footages, those images, Mr. Michel Zeclair would have been sent in jail, right? Because of all the accusations those police officers invented against him. They completely distorted the reality in order to have the privilege of beating a nigger, and then sending him to jail for the beating he was a victim of. So you have a destruction of the body, and then you have condemnation to social death. He could have been in prison for 10 years or something. This is something absolutely crazy. But we should think of all the past police violence in those terms. It's not about people trying to fly away. It's not about people trying to resist. It's always about the police who is consciously enjoying the act of uh, attacking what they think are dirty niggers in France. That's exactly what's going on. And I think we should really admit that this is the situation. That is not something that is imported from America. That is not something that is, that is new. We know the genealogy, the uh, a colonial genealogy of, of this police uh, that dates back for almost uh, one half a century, and then you have this this uh, infamous police de noir in the 18th century. You have many many uh, um, instantiations of of, of of this uh, racial or racist police. 
But we should understand that the role of this police is not necessarily control, right? It is practically a micro-political function. Let's say a function of terrorizing, a function of destroying, a function of uh, uh, pushing for false accusations and sending deliberately people in jail. This is the situation. And so we should really change our narrative. We should, we, we should really try to understand this institution, not as a mean just one or, or not as an unfair one, not something that should be reformed in order to be more adequate to the diversity of, of, of the population. No, we should think of the intrinsically racist, exterminatory institution that is deliberately pushing for uh, 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 violating, being violent, uh, uh, and, be, and being uh, uh, absolutely terrifying for for black and brown people. In this yeah, country. thank you so much, Norman. I was uh, really appreciating the fact that you extended beyond the violent act, the physical act, the whole Kafkaian procedure that follow. The, the, the physical crime, which is indeed absolutely the case, that we remember uh, that Mr. Theo Luakas, who has been not only aggressed by the police, has then two years ago after, or less than a year and a half after, been condemned for, ro for robbery. And we can also talk about the family of Adam Adama Traoré. There's a persecution of, that continues the state violence beyond the physical act of police violence. I was listening to you and I remember that you once told me a very interesting quote by the hip-hop bands from uh, Toulouse. I think you come from Montmirail or from Toulouse also, uh, Norman. It's uh, PNL which says, it, which says they have the pictures before the souvenir. They are talking here about the, the audience, the white people, the, the general audience. But we have the souvenir before the pictures, because you, me, the racialized people who have been living, I mean, I've been suffering twice in my life uh, of police violence, and what does it mean? We had, we had the souvenir before the pictures. And it raised to a question that came to my mind at that point, which I think it's a crucial one, one regarding uh, Mr. Zeckler, what Harvey Young says. Harvey Young, when he told me about uh, the pornotropy of the uh, racialized, I mean, uh, the, the, the racist crimes uh, as a genealogy. He was, of course, referring to the lynching postcard that were very fashion in the 20s in the, in the America. So, and then he spoke about, the, of course, uh, uh, Rodney King uh, granny videos that in the end did not serve to condemn the, the, the cops in the, in the trial. So my question, I, I think there is a question of visibility and invisibility of the racialized people has a, has, has a violence perpetrated uh, by the state. As much as this violence is kept invisible, frame of visibility and invisibility that the state allows to racialized people. I'm referring here to probably hundreds of thousands of people who have been dying or uh, uh, victim of police violence but from whom we will never, ever, ever uh, heard because there were not cameras at this moment. They were not, 
I mean, I'm I'm thinking about Malik Usekin in Paris, but they were they are. I mean, we don't know even, and I, I'm always surprised by the fascination that modern democracy had with this sort of stupid monument of the unknown soldiers. But why we don't care about these unknown racialized victims? The list would be significant. So what do you think about this very difficult stake of visibility and visibility? Well, this is a very good question. <clears throat> First of all, uh, the case of Michel Zeclerc is quite extreme, right? As I said, it's a situation of gratuitous violence. You, you clearly see that uh, Mr. Zeclerc is not resisting. Uh, we clearly see that they are just overly reacting and that they are just basically lynching the poor man. But usually it's not that easy. As you said, it, it, we have cases like the King case, where it is more it's possible to have specific interpretation, it's possible to politicize what we see in most different uh, ways, right? We do not all see the same thing. That's important. And that, that's the meaning of, 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 the, of the sentence, the rap sentence you, you mentioned, right? If you went through a history of racial dehumanization and violence, of course you will not see the same thing as uh, someone white, right? And you will not have the same expectations of, of the video and you will not have the same understanding of the mechanisms at stake. So most of the case, video is not enough, right? It's because it takes a lot in order to be politically effective, right? We have to... Uh, comply, the video has to comply the moral geometry of whiteness. You, you see what I mean? You have to be an absolute utter victim. You have to see an absolute utter victim like Michel Zeclair, right? Someone who is not resisting at all. Someone who decides, who deliberately decides to, to, to uh, act in a complete, absolute nonviolent fashion in order for white people to uh, uh, um, empathize with him. Or in other cases, you just have to die, right? Like in the situation of, of George Floyd. You, you have to be pushed to the extreme. But in other cases, even if it's one against three, one against four, if the black person resists a little bit, then you will have a completely different discourse and interpretation. Because we still have, and it's, it's significant in the case of, of Michel Zeclair too, because, of course, the justification the police gave to the uh, uh, Procureur de la République, to, to the public attorney, was, we were afraid, right? Michel Zeclair, this poor black dude, he afraid four French young police officers. This is absolutely irrational, right? But we are living in... In a world which sees black males, and, and Tommy J. Curry completely described this libidinal and historical process in his book, The Man Not, we are living in a world where black males are considered uh, as monsters, are, are considered as uh, beasts. And this sort of racist, racial unconscious is 
something that will follow us uh, when we see those videos. So, as I said, videos are necessary. They are this pharmacon. It's not they are necessary. They are not enough. Even when we have them, uh, anti-blackness and white supremacy are pushing for certain ways of understanding and interpreting them that will deserve uh, uh, the victim. Just because uh, what most white people have when they see those videos, the, the souvenir, as you said, they have in their mind, the frames they have in their mind, is black inhumanity, black male hypervirility, and, and, and black monstruosity. This is the souvenir they have. This is the way they are going to frame the, the, the racialized people they see in the videos. And it's extremely difficult to go against this mental structure because it's pushed by the state, it's pushed by uh, the literature, it's, it's pushed by many different things. Many, there are a lot of converging it's a converging point for many different discourses and, and many different political everyday practices. I have a last question, uh, Norman, that uh, follow our last uh, recent uh, discussion, but we can develop it later, of course. It links, uh, again, this idea of uh, society of control that Deleuze spoke uh, in the 90s and the way that Bernard Stiegler has been uh, uh, enhancing uh, the, the concept in the case of the and and then and then last but not least, I'm going to link this to Malcolm Ferdinand. In the case of the control societies in which we find ourselves, is it possible to envisage an art of control, the idea of which was suge suggested by Deleuze and Stiegler, as an egantropic process of resistance to our destructions? By this. I mean, what are the possible processes of resistance to avoid the naufrage that Malcolm Ferdinand refers to as a Noah Ark, as a, I mean, re, as a reference to the ecological catastrophe which reproduces the universal whiteness of an ecological catastrophe as a double fracture? Do you know what you do? You want me to elaborate the question, or is it a Okay, so what, what, what I found interesting with uh, Malcolm Ferdinand is that uh, he's referring to, uh, at some point, uh, the Anthropocene as uh, a concept and a terminology from which we have to completely uh, get out and rather, of course, uh, elaborate as much as possible synonyms that would take care of the specificities of the, the capitalist colonialism and slavery, such as the Plantation Seine, the Negro Seine, the, the, all, all these uh, transformations of the land and the bodies that have been perpetrated by the, the, the white modern economy. What, what, I'm, what I'm thinking here about is uh, Malcolm Ferdinand bring a sort of strategy of a beautiful quote, if I'm not wrong, I think he took it from uh, Arturo Escobar, which says, because Earth is the matrix of the world with all its diversity, we have to make the world the reason of ecology. So 
I, I found this, this uh, concept as a form of negantropic one in the sense that he's trying to reinvent, uh, uh, I don't know, an epistemology, a spirituality. To other people who, who are interested in, in, in uh, the disaster to come, then you can try to listen to people who already experienced this disaster, right? For people like black people, like brown people, like all colonized people who understood the disaster as something in the past, as something that is happened and something that is always already happening, right? That, that is repeating. Because for some people, it's something new, but for some other people, it is something that structures the very texture, the very fabric of reality. So, as I said, I think black people do not have a responsibility for the world. We are not at the very core of climate change. We are not at the very core of police violence. We are not at the very core of the exploitation and the over-exploitation and the destruction of the fauna and flora in Africa. It's not our call, right? So, but what we have is the solutions. But our solutions will necessitate uh Real, genuine political revolution and real, genuine social revolution. Mm -hmm, I think. Mm -hmm. And don't you think, uh, regarding this, that uh, among the the black and the brown uh, uh, intellectual and activism con community, some, uh, I would say, uh, perspectives of uh, uh, the conceptualization of the fight have has to become, uh, I would say, much more, uh, I mean, related, uh, class-related. You know what I mean, uh, Norman? Not necessarily... Yes, yes, I understand. No, I, I, I mean, we need both. I, I, clearly, I clearly think we need both. Uh, it, especially because what we see, especially in the US, right, but it's going to be, it's going to be the same everywhere, uh, a complete disconnection between uh, the black, or at least the predominant part of the black middle class and uh, the, the, the uh, working class, the black working class. That's, that, that's why uh, I was referring so often, especially in the, the beginning of, of, our, of our discussion, to the, the black and brown working class, because they have specific interests. Usually they have been conceptualized as different and opposed to the white working class, and I think it's, it's, it's for very good reasons, right? But we should acknowledge that blackness or, or, or especially, especially um, the uh, brownness in terms of Hispanics, as, as we already discussed, those situations are cleaved, right? Those situations are not, uh, there is no homogeneity. Right, uh, th th there is no common point between Barack Obama, his wife, uh, and a poor homeless people in West Philadelphia. There is, th th there is a world between them, uh, and we should and we should be aware of that. Uh, but blackness has a signification, right? Race has a very strong signification because it means dehumanization. But class, because you have this very this very famous. Uh, Quotes by British, uh, black British uh, theorist and sociologist Stuart Hall, right? About race is the way 
class is experienced, right? Race shapes the way class is experienced. I, I think it's the other way around, actually. I think class shapes the way race is, uh, is experienced, right? But race is the fundamental way we experience the world because race defines who is human and who is not. <laughs> it's something quite more radical than, than class. Class is about sociality, but race is about ontology, right? It's about do you deserve to live or not? And of course, class allows exception. As Fanon says in Black Seal White Mask, after a certain amount of millions of, of, of francs, you become white, right? This, this is for sure. But this process of humanization through the acquiring of millions, it's not something very easy. It's not something the vast majority of black and brown people will achieve, of course. But I think race is still extremely relevant. But yes, I see, uh, I, I understand many people are, 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 are um, highly critical towards Black Lives Matter, and, and, and I am too, right? I am too. I, I think uh, it, it, it became, right? There is a sort of recuperation. There, there is a, a sort of way it, it became, so to speak, part of the establishment, the Democratic Party, uh, the, the Hollywood, uh, you name it, right? But when you see the militants, when, when you see the especially young, black, and even, even white people, right? Um, when you see those demonstrations, Personally, I, I, I am not disillusioned, but because I see, I see politicization as something very, very important in this world, and I see the radicalization of the, of, of those of those young persons, the, the way they are pushing for a radical reform, defending and even abolition of the police. I see the retake, burning. Some some police stations. I, I see. I see them clashing with the police. I see the risk they take. I see the the, the way they believe in, the, in their ideas. And I think I, I really think this young generation will do something. I really I really think they believe in something. I I, I really think they believe in in the idea of uh, of another world. And of especially the illegitimacy of the present world order and of the present uh, uh, mode of government we have, especially in the US. They do not see the police as something legitimate, genuinely. I mean, fundamentally, when they see a police officer, they really see an occupying force, like the Panthers did, like Malcolm X did, like. They really see a colonial occupying force. And I think this shifting the narrative is something in this generation X people, as they call them, is something very strong. And we are now building narratives and we are now building frames for interpreting the world that maybe will lead to a new, a new wave of radicalism, I think we need to, to change to change the situation, especially, of course, for black people, especially for all racialized people, and of course for the working class at large, because uh, because all those things are, are part of of um, the necessity 
of, of radical reform of, um, of the West, I mean, of the West, of the, of the West at large. Uh, uh, I do not think the question of race and the question of class, the question of um, the exterminatory goal or the, the exterminatory tendencies of law enforcement in France, in the US, in England, in Brazil, in all those countries, I do not think this question is the same than the question of class struggle, right? I think those questions are distinct. And I think it's possible to articulate them because they, they all, all fought to, to solve both those questions, right? The question of social inequality and the question of dehumanization at the hands of the police and the military and stuff. For all those questions, we need to attack the state and we need to define the state as a enemy and we need to understand the mechanisms of the state. So I think it's possible to articulate those things, but, but I think we need really to think the differences and the converging points between those two questions because they are not the same, right? In other words, the question of fascism, that is to say what, uh, what secures a mode of government that secures overexploitation, right? The accumulation of capital is something different that the question of anti-blackness, the question of white supremacy, and the, the, the question of, of, of um, uh, 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 fundamental racism. Right? I think those questions are, they intersect, but they are not the same. Right? It's, it's something, there are two different questions that we need to address separately in order to make, to see, and to really map the convergences and the and the, 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 the differences. And this is something that we, we, we are just at, we're just at the beginning of, the, of, this, of, this, of this question. But the images of police violence and, and, and so on, uh, of someone who, who is part of the upper middle class like Michel Zuclair, will help us understand, understand that, that uh, both those questions are important, but that they are not the same. And usually one tends to conceal the, the other. But we need to address both. Thank you, Norman. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.